Does it stink being alone? I guess not. (laughs) You know, God made us relational. We are made as His image, and there is something about the human heart that desires companionship. It desires other people. It desires relationships. In fact, have you ever noticed on the Flintstones, Barney and Fred never go to church, but they go to where? The lodge. Do you know the name of the lodge? Water Buffalo. Who said that? Very good, Bubs. Bubs, do you know what number of the lodge it was? Who said it? 26. Oh, you were in first service. That doesn't count. (laughs) There is an intrinsic need in people to belong to other people. Now, a lot of times there are social clubs, and and you you can list a hundred social clubs that are in our uh, life. Some of them are inclusive, some of them are exclusive, some of them are out in the open, some of them are secretive. There's all sorts of clubs out there, there are social clubs. But let's look at this statement, and, and I want you to see if you agree with me. The church is not a social club. Is, is, do you agree with that? There is socialization that happens, but it is not a social club. It is truly a family. That's that's what the church is. We are a family. But there are basic needs about wanting socialization, and that's why even though the church is not a social club, it is social, isn't it? In fact, uh, what sitcom do you walk in and everybody knows your name? Cheers. Uh, From Friends to the sitcom community, which I've never seen, so I'm not even sure, but I I, I was intrigued by the title. We all desire and have a need to be in community. We've been looking at the DNA of our church, our core values over the last few weeks. And core value number one was lost people matter to God, therefore they matter to us. Core value number two was the church is a trauma center. And we are here to help people heal up and get to know Jesus. Core number value three was authenticity frees people up to be genuine and authentic. When you're honest with yourself, you can be honest with God. And when you're honest with God and yourself, you can be honest with others. And that frees you up to actually grow and to mature and glorify God in the way you live. Core value number four was you have to be, we have to be culturally relevant to the issues, whether it's sexual orientation or all the way down to the the abortion issue or anywhere in between. The church needs to be able to have its voice and to speak up God's truth because this is the only thing that will set you free. Am I right? And so we can't be silent on the sidelines as our culture continues to crumble when we have the good news and the truth that would set people, men and women and children, free. So that was core value number four. Last week we talked about full devotion to Christ is normal. And we talked about Rapunzel and whether we want to stay down on the ground or if we want to pursue the climb and and to get to know Jesus intimately. And core value number six is right here in front of us today, and that is life change happens. Life transformation happens best in biblical community. In fact, if you want to know the original intent of marriage, you have to go to Genesis chapter 2. 
And there we can unfold and unpack that, that chapter and we can find out God's original intent for this institution called marriage. We can do the exact same thing about the church But instead of going to Genesis 2, we have to go to Acts 2. So I hope you have your Bibles with you. I want you to prepare to turn to Acts 2. And we're going to look at God's original intent. Now, the day starts out, this Sunday called Pentecost. The church is only comprised of of about 120 people. But by the end of the day, there are going to be 3,000 more added unto that number. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of massive growth. One of the things that you're going to see today in our text, in spite of its impressive growth and size, they are going to give us a glimpse into what biblical community looks like, what it really is. Because as a church grows bigger, it has to grow smaller. Because you can lose biblical community when the group is 3,000 people. Oh, you can probably manage it all right at 120. But what happens when your church grows? How do you stay a family? How do you stay connected to one another? So you're in Acts chapter 2. Peter has already preached this magnificent sermon. People have responded to the invitation to come and repent and be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And beginning at verse 42... It says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came over every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. If we go back up to the beginning of our our passage in verse 42, it says, And they, and we've kind of identified that they already, it's the 3,000. So the they in, in a biblical community has to be believers, people, people that have come to Christ. And so that's the they. And then we have to add, define the word church. In fact, let's go ahead and define the word church with a slide. It's the Greek word ekklesia. Ek is a prefix for out, and klesia means called out or to call. And so the church is called the called out ones. And it really refers to God having a people on this world and he has called them out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of light. It means being really a son of his, being adopted into the family. And the church is this very generic term that means you who have been called out of the world. Are you called out of the world? I hope you have. I hope you've been called out of the world and you've answered the call to Christ. And so with that, you are called the called out ones. Now, go back to verse 46, though, because let's see what the called out ones are actually doing. Because many times when we refer to church, unfortunately, for hundreds of years, we refer to a building, but that's not really what the definition is about. It's about people, but they do do things. So look at verse 46 with me for a moment. 
says, and day by day, they attended the temple together. They had a large group gathering, a worship service where there was apostles teaching. But then look what else they do. The church also goes home and they're breaking bread in their homes. And so here, really, in the very intent of Acts chapter 2 of what a church is, it is a large group gathering and it is a small group gathering. In fact, Jesus said, where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst. That's right. And so I want you to get the concept working and percolating through you right now that church doesn't necessarily mean this. It does. It means the large group gathering where we've come to worship together, to teach one another, lift up praises, have communion, the breaking of bread. But it also includes these little groups in homes. Now, we call them here life groups. They just said they they were doing this in their homes. And so it may seem kind of trivial at first, But if you can kind of wrap your mind around this, you're going to see the importance of of why this makes such a difference. And then if you were to go just a little further in in the history of the church, and later on in another chapter it says this, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching, preaching that Christ is Jesus, that the Christ is Jesus. So the church met in both venues, the large gathering And the small group gathering, a life group, if you want to say it that way, or a worship service. One isn't better than the other. I know a few years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, there was a movement through Christianity, and they badmouthed the big assembly. And they said, oh, well, true Christianity happens only in homes. Wait, we just saw that it happens here and happens in homes. We have to pit them against each other. In fact, God calls us to be involved in both the large group but also the small group. Why? Because in the small group you can experience biblical community. We can actually get to know one another. We can actually get to hang out a little. We get to actually break some bread together. We get to eat together. We get to share our lives together. And that's the importance of of the small group. But there's, there's evidence of this in the New Testament. In fact, In the book Colossians, Paul writes to the church, big C if you want to say, the the big group, he writes to the church, but inside that church body are two guys named Philemon and Onesimus. And then when he writes a separate letter to Philemon, Paul says, hey, by the way, greet the church that meets at your house. Say hello for me. Wait, I thought that Philemon and Onesimus were part of the large group called Colossians. But then at the same time, we see, no, there's a life group meeting at Philemon's house. Oh, that's the original intent of the church, that the church doesn't refer to a building. It refers to God's people, and no matter where they're at, they have large group gatherings and small group gatherings. Even Jesus was in in a small group. Yeah, he had the 120, and then he had the 70, but when you boil it down, Jesus had 12 guys that he hung out with. Large group gatherings are great because they foster identity. 
They foster unity. They, they create some synergy here. We get to do things in a large group that we just can't pull off in a small group. But there's some, some things in the small group that we can't pull off in this assembly, in this, in this big group. There are four hallmarks of the called out ones, the ecclesia that are found in verse 42. Let's go back to verse 42 for a moment. There's, and whether it's a small group, a life group meeting in a home, or whether it's here, look at the four things in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the teaching of the word, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, that would be communion, celebrating the Lord's death, and the prayers. Now, if you notice that those four hallmarks of a church, what they do as a called out ones, one of them is kind of inward focused, you know, receiving the word and, and learning the word. And then you'll notice that fellowship is kind of an outward focus. It's about one another. And then you'll notice that the breaking of bread and prayers is really uh, this vertical thing going on. And so a healthy, small life group or a, a, a large group as such as ourselves, we need to have this inward thing going, we need to have this outward thing going, and we need to have this vertical thing going to be healthy and to be really the called out ones. But go back again to verse 42. It says they devoted themselves. Unfortunately, that's not a very, very strong word. Um, how many of you have remembered that Saturday is Valentine's Day? I am so thankful for my life group that just met called Sunday School because I was reminded that it's a Saturday. They just, they saved my bacon right there, okay? I mean, it's just valuable going to life group to find that out. But devotion sometimes have these romantic inclinations. And the Greek word isn't so romantic, but it's a very, very strong word. In fact, the word itself, strong in Greek, is in the word devoted that is translated into English. It means this, to pay persistent, unswerving attention to and constantly going after. These guys were going after biblical community. Two of three of them can be done in a large group gathering. We can do the teaching part well. We can do the breaking of bread well. We can do some prayers well. But we can't do this thing called fellowship very well. Because if fellowship just means that we slap the name on a hall and serve coffee and donuts and call it fellowship, we have missed what fellowship means biblically. In fact, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at what real fellowship means. It comes from a word koinonia, and I have a slide for you. Koinonia, koine, is, is common, means public. It, it means uh, a normal. Um, it then has this commonality, to share together, to take part together, or to share with. And that really can't be done in a large setting, not to really get to know one another. Fellowship means being part of a group, just like when you walked into Cheers, and I know that you're not going to do that or did that, but it, it's a sense of belonging. You actually belong to the group. You're a member, if you want to say it that way. You belong there. And then fellowship means having the opportunity to share something in common with those that you are gathering with. But I'm going to tell you what the fill-in-the-blank is, the point number one, and if you, 
if there's one thing that you can walk away with today, it's this concept. And here it is. Fellowship is first and foremost a relationship and not an activity. In our modern world of church, we, we've equated fellowship with an activity. And we do these big events and we expect so much good things to come out of these events. And I'm not against big events. I love big events. But if that's all it is is an activity, we've missed what fellowship is. Biblical fellowship. Because fellowship is about a relationship, not an activity. Fellowship isn't a legalistic checklist. Oh, I read my Bible. Check. Okay, I had communion. Check. I prayed, check, now I have to be a brother to Andy Hines. Well, that's not actually something I can check off. Being a brother to Andy Hines isn't something that I can approach legalistically. It means that I'm his brother, and and I have no idea where that's going to lead. That is about a relationship, not an activity, We are made brothers and sisters in Christ because of our relationship with Jesus. And we have Him in common. And that's why we get community out of the word common. We have that in common. But being a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife or a daughter or a son isn't an activity. Those words speak of relationship. And so if we can start to wrestle with this word, fellowship isn't about activities. It's about a relationship. We will be well on our way to understanding. And John, 1 John, it says this, and he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about how Jesus came and showed who he was. And then John, in chapter 1 of his epistle, says this, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship we may have a relationship that binds our hearts together and makes us family. That's what he's talking about. And indeed, our fellowship, our relationship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And when you go back to that verse 42, you'll even notice that it isn't that they were devoted to fellowship. They weren't devoted to coffee and and donuts. It says they were devoted to the. The definite article is there in the original text. They were dedicated to the fellowship. They were dedicated to the relationships that they found in their small life group and in their large group setting. They were committed to those relationships. So the early church wasn't devoting itself to activities, but to a relationship. And that relationship then caused all these other activities to happen. Fact, fellowship, and I have another slide for you. Fellowship means we belong to each other in a relationship because we share together the common life and the incredible enabling grace of our Lord Christ Jesus. Second thing that fellowship is, besides just being a relationship, it's also a partnership. Fellowship is also a partnership. All us believers are on the same ground. It's not exclusive. It's an inclusive thing. We are all equal in Jesus. We all find ourselves at the foot of the cross. We all are in need of His grace, and therefore we have, no one has more of Jesus than, than one another. We're, we're, 
We're a partnership. It's a 50-50 partnership if you want to say it that way. We all have an equal footing in the relationship or in the fellowship or in the community. And as sharers of Jesus in his commission, we get to be co-laborers together. We're in this together. There's a connectedness that we're a band of brothers. And I know that term has been sometimes used too often because of the HBO special and then football and all this other stuff. But the concept is good. The concept is actually great, that we are united because of who we are in Christ. And we're not just friends, we're brothers and sisters. It surprises me that I just found out in the last month that my mom in high school won an award. She's never told me this, and and she's never told any of the kids this, but when she was a, a teenager in high school, World War II was going on. And there were these things called drives, and, and they had to get metal and scrap metal and tires and things that they could use for the war effort. In fact, in order to be engaged actually in the war and win it, we had to have our whole nation engaged in what was called the war effort. There was rationing of, of basic supplies. And yet, today when we have a war, it doesn't even bother us. The, the nation isn't called to ration sugar because we've invaded Afghanistan or gone over there to Iraq. It's just different now. It's like they're going to go do their thing, and we're going to stay here and do our thing. And we're not a band of brothers. But Scripture says that fellowship, real biblical fellowship, means we're in this together. We are in this together. Fellowship, third thing, is also about community. And community involves companionship, sharing life together, giving and taking together. Now, there's a vertical dimension to community. We are to commune with with Jesus. He said, I am the vine, you are the branch. If you abide in me, I'll abide in you, and you're going to produce a lot of fruit. And God's going to come by and maybe prune you a little, but only for your good, so more glory can be given to Him. And we abide when we come together in our life groups or in our large group. We're abiding in Christ. We're teaching about him, and we're praying, and we're breaking bread, and all those things. But then there's this horizontal dimension to biblical community. And that's when the one another's come in. The one another's of of our relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to admonish one another. It says we are to comfort and encourage one another. We are to worship with one another. We're to bear one another's burdens. We're always to seek the good of another person. We're to be honest with one another. We're to show hospitality to one another. We're to be at peace with one another. We're to study the word with one another. We're to share the Lord's Supper with one another. And those, that's, those are the horizontal things that, that unite us together, that bring us into community Hebrews says this, Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you know what the greatest miracle that God does still today? He transforms our lives. He, he takes us from rebellious sinners and starts working on the inside, but he doesn't do it outside of community. He does it in the body of Christ. We need each other. 
I need you. We need to, to, to understand that this transformation doesn't happen in a vacuum. Personal relationships and connectedness are so desperately needed if we're going to grow. We need each other. And I can only share and know about you and you about me as if we're in a small group. I can't get to know you in this setting. But I tell you, the life groups that I'm involved in, I know a lot more about their lives and their struggles and their pains. And I get to come alongside them and they get to come alongside me because we have figured out biblical community and that is we need each other. I, I, this isn't being, re- well, it is being recorded, but my brothers and sisters aren't going to listen to it, okay? But let me tell you something. I'm closer to you guys than I am my own flesh and blood. How is that? Don't you love your brothers and sisters, Rob? Yes, I love my brothers and sisters. I love my mom. They're wonderful, wonderful relationships, but I don't live with them. I have my own set of mothers here. I do. Clyda Whitley told me today something. And you need to go to the doctor, Rob. See about that. Okay, Mom. I'm closer to you than my own relatives. Now, what does that say? Is that to a negative against them? No. It's a positive to tell you about the power of biblical community, the power that we need each other, and that God uses one another's to create us to be just like Jesus. You know, when we say our life group is doing biblical community, maybe, maybe we need to change that verb and say that life groups are being biblical community. But I want to warn you about something. It comes out of the Old Testament. The Israelites had just left Egypt. They're on their way to Sinai. They're on their way to the promised land. It's been less than a year than they've been gone. And they're so excited, they're pumped up, and they're moving forward. And then an enemy comes, and the enemy's name is Amalek. It's a group of people. And Scripture says that there were some in the body that kind of got left behind. They were stragglers. They decided that body life wasn't for them. They'd rather remain in isolation. They thought it was okay. Do you know how many people I run into that say, oh, I believe in God, but I don't need church. I believe in God, but I don't need a small group. I don't, well, wait, wait. God has given us this incredible gift called biblical community, and it's for our safety. It's for our maturity. It's for the raising up and investing in one another's lives, speaking truth into each other's life. And yet, in our American culture, we think we are islands. We are individuals that we can just do it on our own. Well, that's what the Israelites thought, some of them, and this is what happened to them. Moses is recounting it and says this, Remember what Amalekite did to you on the way you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who are lagging behind, those that choose isolation are asking for trouble because the enemy is a sniper. An enemy wants to gobble up those that purposely choose to stay out of biblical fellowship, those that purposely say, well, I don't need community. I'm okay without it. 
There's more to the story, though. Moses turned around and saw these poor, isolated people being attacked. So he told Joshua, he said, Joshua, go down and fight the Amalekites. Amalekites. And he said, I'm going to hold up the staff of God, and as long as I'm holding it up, you're going to prevail. So sure enough, Josh went down and started to protect those that were in isolation, those that had lost community, those that were straggling and and weak and weary and, and burnt out and hurt by the body. And so Joshua was succeeding as long as Moses held up the staff, but Moses' arms got tired. He couldn't do it by himself. And suddenly Aaron and Hur came alongside him and helped him hold up the staff. Because when he dropped the staff, Joshua was losing. When he held up the staff, Joshua was winning. And because of Aaron and Hur coming together, he was able to hold up the staff and there was victory. Victory for those that had been isolated, that were weak and worn out and had given up on the body was actually solved by these three coming together as the body. But there's an ominous warning in here. Gee, uh, the, the word ends it this way, the passage in, in Deuteronomy. The Lord has sworn, sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. What does that mean? Are there Amalekites running around trying to hurt the body of Christ? In a sense, there are. Satan goes after those that step out of the church, that step out of life group, that step out, and they're going to they're gonna face their marriage on their own. They're going to face their financial problems on their own. When they get the phone call in the middle of the night, they don't have anybody to turn to. When they get the bad news over the phone about their body, they have nobody to call and say, I need help. When you get locked out of your house in the middle of the night and, or you break down on the side of the road, they have no one to call because they have forsaken biblical community and they're isolated and they're vulnerable and Satan comes in and, and attacks and tries to wound and tries to take you out. Biblical community is so essential. There's a, there's a poet, a Greek poet, lived 500 years before Jesus. He said these words, No man ever steps into the same river twice, for it's not the same river and he's not the same man. You're like, Rob, that's a little cryptic. What does that mean? That when you step out of biblical community, you set yourself up for isolation and for attack of the enemy. And then when you think, oh, I want to get back into biblical community, you come back into where you once left off, but the group's moved on. It's not the same river. Barbara, it's not the same church, is it? No, it's not the same church because biblical community is dynamic. We are doing life together. Ecclesiastes says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. And if one should fall, the other one will be there to lift them up. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and there's not another to lift him up. Personal relationships and connectedness are so desperately needed in our church today. And I'm talking the big C church, a church in America, but we need it here too to be connected. And I need to wrap up, but fellowship is also about sharing. 
sharing our lives with one another, our time, our talent, our treasure. And many times the word in the New Testament, when it is used, the context of koinonia is about helping a brother or sister out in physical need. And I love the idea that, go back to the text, and it says, verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, that doesn't refer to we're, we're going to live in a commune together. I love you, but I don't want to live in a commune with you. And I understand if you want to say that same statement to me. But what it does tell us is that they held on to their possessions very, very loosely. You know, there's a new phenomena out in the world today. They're called lending libraries. You can go borrow a power tool from them. There's about 50 of them in the United States. You know the church has been doing that for 2,000 years? That we don't hang on to our stuff. And if somebody comes along and says, man, I, I have a tree to cut down. One of us in the life group will say, well, I got a chainsaw. Or when you do break down, you don't have to call a tow truck you call a button boy, right? Because <laughs> they got a trailer and they got a truck and, and they know how to load a, a, a truck uh, or your car onto a dolly because they're in your Sunday school class. I have a relationship and I can call them. And it's this incredible thing called biblical community that we hold on to our stuff very loosely. That when we need a toilet plunger, we don't run out to Walmart to buy a new one. We go and we ask somebody that's in our life group, hey, do you got a snake? I love that a month ago, Sean Starmer lost a, a snake, the kind that cleans out a roto-rooter kind of snake. He hasn't seen it for years, but he knows it's floating around somewhere in the church. That's biblical community. That's the sharing of our lives. It means that when you see each other at Walmart, you don't just keep going on your way. You go over and say, hey, how are you? Real koinonia is not a social club. It's not togetherness. It's this incredible thing called unity that's not in the world. It's not even affection or friendship. It's genuine love because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's the last fill in the blank, and I need to wrap her down. Life change happens best in community, biblical community, and it's about life on life. That's what real church is. Big group setting, small group setting, it's life on life. And I want to encourage you, if you're not in, in coming regularly to church, I'm asking you, come regularly. Get involved in biblical community. If you're not in a small group, get involved in biblical community. I tell you what, the donut shop crowd and the blue top crowd, they may be your friends, but they don't have what draws us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is the blood of Jesus. And that's where we begin. If, if you don't even have the blood of Jesus, then Jesus is inviting you to come, to be involved in the foremost relationship of all, and that is a relationship with Him. I'm going to ask that you stand and sing a song of decision. And maybe you want to, this is my church. This is where I attend. This is where I want to plant my flag and tell the whole world, this is where I belong. And I invite you to come.